Well, part twos can be difficult. Let me explain. Part twos really are important for good stories or movies or sequels, if you will. But for a part two to make, to, for a part two to work, it needs to be a good connection for what has been said in the past, but also maybe even more a compelling invitation and a promise of what will be told next. So in this message that is entitled, Can We Talk About Hell More Than Just Flames? It's my attempt and my prayer and my hope that this message will connect with your heart as we leave, with this, as we leave from this place. Now, if you missed part number one, I'll just do a real brief refresher course. Anytime you talk about hell, we have to keep people in mind. This doctrine is unlike any other doctrine in the Bible. It's different than the end times or the importance of understanding the means of grace. Because when we talk about hell, we're really talking about nephews and nieces, grandchildren, siblings, spouses, and bestest of friends who are impacted by the reality and the destiny of hell. Hell, not heaven, is our default position. So this has been the picture that we have used. It reminds us about relationships and connections. And, a, and so, so there needs to be a, a, a catch in our, in our spirits because not to wrestle with this with humility and clarity, it cheapens the work of the cross of Jesus and it sleepens those of us who are in the church, who are rescued by the cross and it deadens sinners to the cross. We want to be, make sure that we hear a really clear message, not about banging and screaming from a pulpit or from the church, but really this message is very simple. Repent and believe. Your eternal soul and destiny is at stake. So my prayer for each of you, for all of us this week, has been let us think about people in this way, not them and us, the damned and the saved, but rather Calvary and the ones you love. That is the hope for us and the hope for others. So don't get lost in the doctrine and try to figure out where the location of hell is, but don't forget to tremble. Proverbs 28, 14 says this, blessed is the one who's always fearful of sin, and whoever, but whoever is hard-hearted falls into disaster. We need to make sure that we remember Hell is about people. And secondly, as uncomfortable and awkward and raw as hell is, Jesus' teaching is really pretty clear in the New Testament. In fact, it's very clear. And you can make this comment when you hear about hell, well, there's all kinds of different views about hell. And how do you know that your interpretation of hell is, is true? How can you make sure? And my answer to that question is probably no surprise to you because it has plausibility worth trusting. I am banking and putting all my chips on the one who rose from the dead. I trust my life on the authority of Jesus and what he did. Jesus actually went to hell, full of grace and truth, and returned from hell still full of grace and truth. So his first steps of what's called the exaltation of Christ was descending into hell. Let me explain. In just a few minutes, we're going to take the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we confess the words of the Apostles' Creed, we say these words. And this is called what theologians, scholars, super smart people have called the humiliation of, humiliation of Christ. And it goes like this. He was born of the Virgin Mary. You, many of you have seen me do this before. He was born of the Virgin Mary. First step of humiliation. Then he suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was the governor. 
And then he was crucified. Third step of the humiliation of Christ. Crucified by Romans. And then he was dead. Verified by a sword in his side. Blood and water coming out. And then he was buried in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So what I did is I stair-stepped that. Did you see that? Okay. Born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified. Dead. And buried. The next phrase that we say in the Apostles' Creed, the confession of the faith, is this. He descended into hell. Notice the direction I, I went. Did I go down or did I go up? I went up. He went down as the conquering king. He went down as the victor. So in understanding about hell, it's important that we think about people, but also the words of Jesus. So that's where it gets real practical. Here's the third thing. What would you say if someone brought this topic up? What would that feel like? You're at a coffee shop, you're out for a run, you're borrowing a tool, you're walking your dog, you're out for dinner with a friend, you're fishing this summer, or you're at the lake with some friends, and you're in a conversation, and someone would say, I don't believe a loving God would send anyone to hell. He wouldn't even allow a place like that to exist. It seems like a fair question. How can an all-powerful, loving God bring forever torment? How do you balance that? Well, you may say, I have no idea. Well, that's what I want to help you with this morning. We gather as the church. We come together as the church to later scatter. It's called gather and scatter. And so as the body of Christ, we're equipped because some of those, those conversations usually take place not in a building like this, but in real life. So I want to give you this video, and then we're going to teach off this video and hear how it lands in our hearts. This is from the Colson Center, Chuck Colson Center, Worldview. It's really powerful. You're in a conversation and someone says, I don't believe a loving God would send anyone to hell. He wouldn't even allow a place like that to exist. What would you say? It's easier to believe in things like heaven, redemption, and eternal joy with God, you know, the things we want to be true, than those things that are hard to imagine and even stomach, like eternal punishment. But truth is never measured by how much we like it. Reality doesn't conform to our feelings or to the popular vote. If we trust the Bible for the good things we believe, like heaven, we have to be willing to trust it for everything it says. It's a package deal. Hell is a hard thing to talk about, but the next time it comes up in conversation, here are three things to remember. Number one, God doesn't force anyone into hell, but he doesn't force anyone to love him or be with him either. In the afterlife, people will either be with God or they'll be separated from God. The place where people are with God for eternity is called heaven. And the place where people are separated from God for eternity is called hell. God won't force people to love him or to be with him against their will. Love must be freely given. God doesn't drag people into heaven kicking and screaming, and he doesn't push them into hell against their will. God wants all people to be with him, but not all people want to be with God. They want to do their own thing without having a God over them. Rebelling against God or deviating from his will is what Christians call sin. Sin creates separation between us and God. 
When people don't want to answer to anyone, when they want to be in charge of their own lives without interference, God permits them to have their way. God permits some people to go to hell because He won't force people into heaven against their will. Number two, Jesus not only taught that hell is real, He talked about it more than anyone else in the New Testament. Every single writer in the New Testament speaks of the reality of hell, making it one of the most consistently affirmed truths in the Bible. And the person in the New Testament who talked about hell the most was Jesus. But he didn't use it as a fear tactic to gain followers. He warned people with the sense of urgency a firefighter has when he's trying to save people from a burning building. It's not a neutral belief. It's really a matter of life or death. Hell is the alternative to being with God. It's described as torment. There's no love, no peace, and no joy in hell because it's a place without God, and God is the only source of those things. God can't give life apart from Himself. Once you distance yourself from God, the natural progression ends in hell. That's the end of the road, and it's eternal. Though that is a hard truth, it's still the truth that Jesus affirmed and He wanted to warn people about, which leads to our third point. Number three, hell does not diminish God's love. It displays it. Hell is the final destination of our trajectory without God's help. We've all created this separation from God. Just how much God loves us is displayed by the extraordinary measures He was willing to take in order to save us and give us a way to come back to Him. By becoming one of us and suffering a brutal death, Jesus took on Himself the consequences of our choices. Even though we separated ourselves from God by sinning, God provided Jesus as the way for us to be forgiven and be with Him. Rather than diminishing God's love, the magnitude of God's love is displayed by the incredible measures He took to save us from hell. In other words, it took something bigger than hell to overcome hell. So the next time you're in a conversation about hell, remember these three things. Number one, God doesn't force anyone into hell, but He doesn't force anyone to love Him or be with Him either. Number two, Jesus taught that hell is real and talks about it more than anyone else in the New Testament. Number three, hell does not diminish God's love, it displays it. For What Would You Say? I'm Brooke McIntyre. Let's pray. Our gracious Father who lives in heaven, holy, sacred, majestic, and all-powerful and awesome, hallowed is your name. For by your name we understand in just a small way who you truly are. You are Jehovah provider of all good and sustaining needs we have for daily life and into eternity. You are the Alpha and Omega, the very one who spoke the words of life and life into existence. In the beginning of creation, you are the one we will live with into forever, eternal, eternally, in heaven, with peace and joy unspeakable. How it must break your heart, your pure and good heart, to see women and men, boys and girls, students and seniors turn their back on you, rebel from you and walk away from you, and even deny your very own existence, the very existence and glory of the great I am, who has always been. Does the clay tell the potter what to do? I do, don't I? And you know we do. You are the creator. 
You allowed us, the created ones, the clay ones, the freedom and total right to ignore the footprints of creative creation's power and even your characteristics in your attributes. What kind of God freely and personally takes on the accusations of enemies and evil acts and says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do are doing. The Son of God said that. Your Son said that. That's what kind of God you are. So in this message, by your Holy Spirit's transforming power, will you grant us eyes to see and grasp and ears that don't just hear but understand as momentarily, just for a few minutes, we look into the pit of hell, this destiny and reality. This is no place you desire anyone to be, yet it exists and it is true and it has tormented occupants. So we thank you for our only hope, the cross. We cling to that hope, but even more so, we rest on the fact that you cling to us steadfast and true as a rescuer. So equip and empower this church called Bethesda by your Holy Spirit to scatter and testify to your grace and beckoning call to repent and believe. Amen and amen. I just want to encourage you, if you're here in person, to find a uh, bulletin, uh, a printed one, get one. You may want to um, make some marks. One of my favorite professors in college, my first year, my freshman year, uh, said this, take notes for two because someday you will want to share this. And if you're watching online, we're so glad that you're watching. Uh, I want to encourage you to go to our online bulletin and just download this and follow along. I think you'll get much more out of it. Well, let's just circle back and look at what we heard. It was really good. That's not the slide I wanted. Here it is, right here. Number one, God doesn't force anyone into hell, but he doesn't force anyone to love him or be with him either. We'll look at Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 through 22 in just a second. And just a simple illustration will show this to you. What do we mean by that? It's this illustration right here. Genesis 3. We have a choice. There was only one tree in which not to eat. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's God's gift of free will. If God's gift of free will is a real one, then he must allow us to reject his love. Hell is the only place in the universe that lies outside his omnipresent being. If we desire to be left alone, he will ignore us. If we choose our sin and ourselves over God in heaven, he will leave us to our terrible self-enslaving sin. What I want you to think about is I want you to think about the Bible as two bookends, if you will, two grand bookends, as you will. The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. The first two chapters are Eden is created. And the last two chapters of the Bible are Eden and is restored. So what would you say would be in the middle, smack dab in the middle, is this. It's Christ. The Bible is God's rescue mission. It is his desire to have a new heaven and a new earth and heaven and earth be reconstructed, if you will. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 through 10, in the Lord's Prayer, he said, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, and what's the next phrase? On earth as it is in heaven. Creation and a free will push the reality of hell onto the table. When Pastor Brian read the call to worship, it was very intentional selecting that call to worship because verse says, 9 and 10 says this, Christ has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, 
which he purposed in Christ. Excuse me, that's our Father. Our Father made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under in Christ. So there's a shift, and the shift is this. God's end game is not heaven or hell, but rather a new heaven and a new earth. One of the books that I've listed there is a book entitled Skeletons in God's Closet. It's excellent. And one of the things that was helpful to me when I was thinking about this and getting ready for this message is in understanding of a new heaven and a new earth, it reframes the conversation. It's not about an up and down conversation. Good people go up, bad people go down. Puffy clouds and harps and angels and wearing robes and being in church forever for those who go up, go up to heaven. That sounds super boring, by the way. And down, underground torture chamber where little devils poke you with pitchforks. But rather, it's a new heaven and a new earth. One very smart man by the name of N.T. Wright put it this way. He's an Anglican. He said, in the New Testament, we do not find life after death in heaven. Listen closely. But rather, a life after life after death. In other words, a newly embodied life in a newly reconstituted creation. Wright goes on to say this. All the great Christian teachers for centuries after that taught the same thing, that what God did for Jesus on earth, he will do this for his people at the end, raising them to a new bodily life to share in the life of the new world. Now, this gets really practical. This week, we've had two people, two men who love Jesus in heaven. Our friend Clarence Sprague, whose granddaughter Olivia often plays in the worship team, and also Ben Martin, whose wife plays our organ. Both of them passed away within the last week. And at Clarence's funeral on Monday, when we had the service here, I went to the casket, and I was thanking the Lord for Clarence and his example he's been to, to me. And he had this incredible verse from 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And, and I had seen it before, but part of it just jumped off like, man, I've never seen that before. And the verse that was there in the, in the casket was this, I've run the good race, I've fought the fight, and, I've, and the crown waiting for me. And then it was the rest of the verse that got, it, got me. Not just for me, but for everyone who is eagerly awaiting for him to come again. We have to keep that in mind. That's the vision. That is the understanding of God's great and grand story. Amidst the cultural chaos, amongst all the mess that's going on, God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. Now, historically, Jesus is listed as always, if you ever, they do surveys and world's greatest leaders or most impactful leaders, Jesus always makes the list. Somewhere he's in the top five, often the top one. And even non-Christians recognize this. Even those who are atheists. There was one, a Hindu leader by the name of Mahatma Gandhi, who had a very famous quote. He said this, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now you may say, well, he was just crabby. But there was a new Barna survey that was just released this week. Listen to this. 62% of all non-Christians or lapsed Christians, lapsed Christians, said that the number one quality they look for in a person 
with whom to discuss faith is non-judgmental. And only 34% said they know any Christians who possess this quality. Bam! Right between the eyes when I heard that. So we need to reorient ourselves or help us understand the very basics or what I like to call the moorings, like you can't move these. So that leads to the second point. What we heard Jesus not only taught that hell is real, he talked about it more than anyone else in the New Testament. He talked about it more than anyone in the New Testament. Last week, we looked at how he taught that throughout the book of Matthew. He did that all throughout his three years, and he did it throughout what was called the five discourses, which is a fancy word for his combination of teaching. And we have to understand this, that God has the right to do what he pleases And what has he pleased to do? He loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, these are the words of Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, and I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The book of Hebrews says this about Jesus, about the great high priest. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, that our hearts sprinkle the cleanses from a guilty conscience and that we can hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who is promised is faithful. This is good news. Did you catch in the video that hell is a place where there is no peace, where there is no joy, where there is no love? It is a place without God. Jesus is the only source of those life realities. So here's the second paradigm shift. It's this. God's mission isn't an escapist story, but rather a redemptive story. It's not an escapist story like I'm out of here, but it's a redemptive story. His mission mission isn't to get the hell out of earth, which is an escapist narrative, but rather to get the hell out of us on earth, a redemptive narrative. I told a friend this week, hell was never intended to house humans. It never was. It was created to be a place where the angel of light, the deceiver of our souls, was to be cast and with all his workers thrown there. The demons, not you or me. The most defensible doctrine in the Bible and the one that even unbelievers, those who don't, have not been bowed, bent their knee to Jesus, is the doctrine of the fallenness and the brokenness and the depravity of humans. Just look at your phone for five minutes. Just check your tablet. You will find the killing of life both in the tomb and in the classroom. You will see words that, and actions that just make your head spin, whether it's assaults emotionally, physically, financially, sexually, relationally. Romans chapter 7 says that our hearts are dirty, but God doesn't leave us alone. 
His rescue mission isn't an escapist story, but a redemptive story. And the proof of that is the cross. It's not us trying to get to God. It's God coming to us and saying, will you let me heal you? He pursues us. He moves towards us. He takes the initiative. He takes the first move. Maybe you're thinking this morning, you're thinking, I'm going to take my chances. I would not go there. Because taking your chances, you have to be 100% perfect. How's that going? His question is, not will I let you in, but will you let me heal you? What God has done on the cross is he's provided a way out. He's provided an escape, a rescue, excuse me, a rescue. Please understand that truth will connect to reason. It's not contradictory, it's observable, and it plays out in real time. And then truth, if it's connected to reason, will connect to faith. <laughs> to reject truth and to reject grace is dehumanizing. So the third point that was shared is this. Hell doesn't diminish God's love, it displays it. I want you to track with me on this. Don't click off because initially you go, that is a crazy statement. Why would you ever make that statement? Hell doesn't diminish God's love, it displays it. So we have to understand the second half to this message. The second half of this message is called more than just flames. Where does the flame part fit in? Is that the underground torture chamber that we often think about? Well, just step back a little bit, and we're going to understand where this comes from. Jesus uses the word for hell in the New Testament. He uses the word called Gehenna. You see it in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. This is Jesus talking. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands than to go to Gehenna, which is the unquenchable fire. Jesus uses this word Gehenna. He uses it another time in Luke chapter 12, 5. But I warn you who to fear. For him who is after he has killed has the authority to cast you into Gehenna. Now, it would be perfectly appropriate to say, I have no clue what that means, Pastor Kirk. Well, this is what you would find if you Google map or you Google the, the imagery. This is the valley of Gehenna today. This is Jerusalem. It's a valley. It's outside the city. But what's important for that picture for you to catch is notice there is a wall. It's outside the city. Now, here's why that's important, because it's got tons of history behind it. The name Gehenna got an awful reputation under the administration and the 16-year reign of King Ahaz, as written in 2 Chronicles 28, 1 through 4. For 16 years, this king reigned as the leader of Judah, the people of God. And how they did their religious worship, how they did their religious practice, is they would sacrifice their own children as an offering. God's people slaughtering their offspring as a worship offering. This is why the weeping prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 32, 35, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. That was the God. Though I did not command them to do this, nor did it even enter into my mind, they should do this abomination to Judah 
to sin. So here's why this is important. The prophets named this notorious valley as a symbol of Israel's idolatry and what was wrong in Jerusalem. They would go outside the city. They would sacrifice to their, they would worship their gods outside the city. And then they would come back into the city and want to have a relationship with God in the temple. No. He wants people to worship him alone. The very first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods. And this outside, inside was going on. Can you see the disconnect? It's like asking the doctor to heal you but not go after the cancer that's in your body. Hell's location is outside the city. You see that in the second bookend. Remember, the first bookend was Genesis 1 and 2. God wanting to have a relationship and walk with Adam and Eve. They chose like we chose not to do that. In Revelation chapter 21, the last, the, the first seven verses are the verses that we read at and that we hear at funerals. But we never hear, generally, we never hear the, the eighth verse, which says this in Revelation chapter 2, tw excuse me, Revelation 21 verse 8. It says this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. They won't be allowed in the city. So the paradigm shift is this. The paradigm shift is that God's city is a promise that differentiates between the outside and the center. And the center is where Jesus is. Jesus in heaven provides the light. Jesus in heaven himself says, I will protect you. Jesus himself says, I will be the covering. And you noticed it, what the video said. It took something bigger and someone bigger than hell to overcome hell in the flesh. So let me explain that in just a second. What do we do with this message? How do you take a hell message and go, okay, how did that impact me? Number one, during the spring and the summer, I'd invite you to use some holy imagination, sanctified imagination, if you will. And I, I listed it there in your bulletin. You can pull it, uh, you can download it or buy it. It's called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Purchase it and listen to it. You may say, well, I don't like using imagination and pretend. Well, there was a song that connected with America probably about 15 years ago. It was this, I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me. It, it hit not only the Christian charts, it hit the secular charts as well too. Number two is this. Maybe you know someone who doesn't know Christ. I'm sure many of us do. What do you do then? Someone that maybe their eternal destiny would be hell. I'd encourage you to fast and pray and intercede and fast and pray and intercede. Jesus said these kind only come out by fasting and prayer. Remember, hell is not a sterile argument to win, but a truth that's connected to destiny and reality. Pray. And thirdly, know this, that you have a friend, you have a savior, you have a king who knows you and who's been to hell and back and he has given his life for you. So let me tell you, 
just something to really encourage you. In the book of Leviticus, we see an incredible picture of who Christ is, and even more so. Usually when people get to the book of Leviticus, they're, uh, they're planned to read through the Bible in the year. The wheels fall off. Genesis and Exodus, those two books totally rock. But then you get to Leviticus and you go, really? It's like eating rice cakes or kale. Amen? Just saying. Well, you get to the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus chapter 16 tells an interesting uh, account of called the Day of Atonement. Now, much of the Day of Atonement we get, we've heard before. Uh, Aaron was the first of the Levites, and he was Moses' brother, the Ten Commandments guy. And Aaron was given instructions on how to deal with the Day of Atonement. And the first, they would take two animals, and the first one was the lamb. And the lamb would be killed, and the people sins, and it would be there in the temple and be slaughtered. And, and we, we hear that, the Lamb of God. We sing about the Lamb of God. We talk about the Lamb of God, all that. But there was a second animal. And the second animal was a goat. And get a load of this. The second animal was called the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, according to Jewish traditions, they would tie a red string around the scapegoat in order that they wouldn't uh, confuse between the lamb and the scapegoat. Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in about verse 15, you pick this up. But here's what they would do with the scapegoat. They would take the scapegoat out of the city. And the scapegoat, by Aaron and the Levites or the priests, or they would be their pastors, we would say, they put, the ha- they put their hands on the head's goat, on the goat's head. Yeah, that'd be better. And then they would have a person bring that goat out into the wilderness. And there was a trusted person that would lead the goat out into the wilderness. And then according to Jewish tradition, they would bring that goat to a perilous place, a treacherous place, because they never wanted the goat to come back into the city because all the sins of the people were on that goat. And according to tradition, they would make sure that that goat was brought to a treacherous place, a high cliff or a place where that goat could never come back because that goat was cast out of the city with all the sins. Here's where it breaks down. You go, oh, that's just like Jesus, except for one thing. Jesus came back on Sunday night, and he showed up to the disciples, and he showed up to a friend of mine called Cleopas, and he said, look at my hands. Look at my side. I have died for you. You can't hear a message on hell and not wrestle with this question. Do you know Christ? Do you know him? Have you invited him into your heart? Have you asked him to forgive your sins? When we take the body and blood of Christ, this is the admission that we are sinners. This is the admission that no, we don't have everything together. This is the admission that we need rescue from Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the message of the gospel. So before we take the body and blood of Christ, I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and a series of questions that we always ask during communion is this. Do you believe in the promises of the scriptures? Have you confessed your sins? 
do you recognize his real presence here? And finally, have you sought in humility to be at peace and reconciled with people in this Christian body called Bethesda Lutheran? A body not of perfect people, but of a lot of sinners, but a lot of people who do love Christ and want him to be change their lives. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you've heard the prayers of your daughters and of your sons. And so as we approach this holy meal now, we would do that as dependent people, dependent on the grace and the goodness that you've given to us in Christ. Well, here's the story. Jesus was crucified between two criminals. One was on his left and one was on his right. It happened between noon and three in the afternoon and there was this conversation that happened. One of the criminals hurled insults at him and the other criminal picked up on that and said, don't you know who this is? He turned to him and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to this criminal, today, you'll be with me in paradise. The countryside became dark. About three in the afternoon, he cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. The earth opened up. Saints came up and went into Jerusalem. There was a tall veil that split from top to bottom and then the centurion looked and said truly this must be the son of God the scriptures tell us that Jesus' word says come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest and then the scriptures also tell us that if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness can that totally be true? You bet it is. He put his body on the cross to pay the penalty. So for 2,000 years, God's people have confessed their faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Now I'd invite you to just to stand and say those words with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.